Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. Well, as I already mentioned, we have Reverend uh, Byron Carrier back to the, with us today. So I, we already did the introductions last time, so I'm just going to head it back over to you. Thanks for being here again. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for allowing me to come back. And uh, I enjoy meeting you. I, I see I'm coming at a, an important time for your fellowship when you're doing your fundraising. And you have a vibrant, very large community here in McMinnville. And uh, I hope it just uh, continues to grow. You, you, earn, you raise the money you want to raise, and you get done what you want to get done. I'm, uh, I, if you're interested in uh, what else I'm interested in, you can go to my website where I published stuff. It's called Earthly Religion, one word. Religion is the second part, Earthly is the first part. And uh, you'll see that my interests are, are wider than what I'm talking about here today. Public speaking is one of the most stressful things that people won't do. <laughs> it can exalt or it can humble and wear. I do it not to push people to accept my dogma or any dogma not to wield a bully puppet, but to explore the varying aspects of issues we humans have to deal with, who we are, how we'd like to be. So I'll be doing that today. And I hope you'll be uh, tolerant because this is my position and it doesn't necessarily represent others even here. Easter is one of those days when people who don't otherwise attend church show up. Someone suggested today there would be a very light crowd because so many people would be involved in other Easter services or family events, but I see there's a sizable number here today. Um, if you're new to a Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, or even if you're a longtime attendee, let me remind you of the tradition of this free pulpit. Those who speak from this place, or indeed from any place, have the latitude to think for themselves and to say so. Emerson once wrote, always a seer is a sayer. So we honor this. I'm from out of town, I'm from Ashland, and um, the people here barely know me. I think my name was uh, on a list of people who were available. I have been welcomed, though, and engaged here, both of which I value. But beyond what I or any preacher has to say from this pulpit, each listener has his or own thoughts, values, and ideals. You use honor this. Authority and worth don't come from books, institutions, vestments, titles. They live within, in everyone. Listen to me or others, but know thyself. Notice I didn't say yourself. I said thyself. Because who you are is inherently worthy. 
You're a risen agent of creation. Now that's somewhat re uh, religious language, but it's also scientific. We are evolved of a long process, enmeshed in it. The universe gives us birth, and we are in it, and it is in us. You are a risen agent of this creation. So I, I brought a whole bunch of books with me on this huge topic out of my seminary uh, career. Here's a bunch by Elaine Pagels, who does the Gnostic Gospels. Um, there's some classics about the classic Unitarians. I'll be mentioning a couple here today. Emerson and Parker. The Trinitarian controversy over the many hundreds of years. Tom Paine on whether we should uh, listen to and adhere to what others tell us to believe or not. And the two main ones, uh, three of them actually, um, on the life of Jesus as best as we could know. There was a thing called a Jesus Seminar where they, uh, they deliberately tried to figure out what, if Jesus lived, he might have said for sure, and what might have been added to his words later. Uh, so he, uh, Marcus Borg, uh, one of the authors here, he says he knew that Jesus was born of a virgin before he knew what a virgin was. <laughs> and similarly, I was baptized Catholic and later given a catechism a book containing not only the right answers, but the right questions. <laughs> we, as children, and then later as adults, tend to rely on those who say they know. But do they? Because some claim to be prophetic, and then others write that down, and others wear the garb of authority about it, and others agree with them, doesn't necessarily mean that they have the right questions and answers for each of us. Meanwhile, we would each like to know what's true and what works in life. So we search in a culture of various memes. I, do you, are you familiar with that word meme? Meme is like the cultural, the linguistic counterpart to genes. Certain uh, ideas get selected for and persist and kind of dominate in a culture and others uh, fall away. So we search in a culture of various memes. Much of the world engages in archetypal meme here this weekend. Various faith communities are celebrating Easter, the Easter story in their very unique and very worthy ways. We go through the various elements of a story of an unjust plight against a kind and innocent man who apparently dies but then gets away. Now some later added a lot of miracles to that core story, from his birth and how he was born, uh, to his arising after death, saying if we believe in those ideas and stories and the people who tell them and in Jesus, we will escape death in order to join him in heaven because we will not have really died. And I respect this, that many find joy and solace in this formula, this meme. I wonder, though, if dwelling on injustice, pain, and sin doesn't do a disservice to him and to our culture. Tragedy at the center of what ought to be joy. Some places enact yearly the Passion Play. And when they do, someone from the community has to play Pontius Pilate. 
Someone has to drive those spikes. That pulls us away, though, from how kind, inclusive, and brave Jesus actually was. He let the children and the downtrodden come to him, trying to give us life more abundantly. And somehow, his way of loving gets lost in a message about how he died for our sins. Dare we doubt such martyrdom if he died for our sins? I'm uncomfortable with that whole notion that is taught to many and to children too. Emerson once wrote, he says, I, um, he does not say, I think I am, but quotes some saint or sage. So I ironically quote Emerson saying that <laughs> to agree with him. And to with Tom Paine and others, Emerson also went on to say, a trust in yourself is the height, not of pride, but of piety. A trust in yourself is the height of piety. Those who merely speak, who speak merely as books enable, as synods use, as interest command, they battle. He went on to call it a perversion that the divine nature is attributed to one or two persons and denied to all the rest and denied with a fury. This was a fiery speech. He gave it in 1838 to the eight graduating theological students at Harvard. And it earned him the ire of all his Unitarian colleagues. All pulpits were closed to Emerson after that speech. I encourage you, if you ever read Emerson, to find his Divinity School Address, 1838. All their pulpits were closed to him except for Theodore Parker, also a Unitarian minister who was controversial and rejected as a transcendentalist. Parker asserted that the truth of the Gospels does not rest on the miracles being true but the good results of living a Christian life, a life of forbearance, compassion, kindness, truth speaking, like Jesus did. Well, just as Thomas Jefferson was called an atheist for his deistic belief that the word of God is better found in nature than in scripture, so was Thomas Paine even more denounced as an atheist for criticizing the inconsistencies and cruelties in the Bible. He railed against it. Un he railed against believing it uncritically, that we should bring our reason and our intelligence and our compassion and our conscience to the reading and not have that reading tell us what our reason, intelligence, and compassion should be. He railed against believing it uncritically. He said this, I sincerely detest it it was in a book called The Age of Reason. And here it is here, The Age of Reason. He wrote four different things. Common Sense was the most well-known one. I seriously detest it. And as I detest everything that is cruel, I cannot dishonor my creator by calling it by his name. He similarly critiqued Christianity. And if you do read uh, The Age of Reason, you'll see he does a pretty good job of trying to understand the inconsistencies in the Bible and in Christianity and the cruelties. 
The truth and connection to God is not defined by and limited to alleged prophets as told by scriptures and then added to and altered over the eons. Idolizing the prophets and the scriptures misdirects our attention from the presence of God around us and in us. We tend to exaggerate distant persons while diminishing and missing us. Now I say all this not to distract, distract, detract, excuse me, from Jesus Christ, but to explain that his last name wasn't Christ. Christ was a title that was applied later by others. If Jesus was anything, he was humane. He cared for marginalized people. He spoke truth to power, and for these, he was executed. I've got a book here, Riza Eslan, who builds on this very much, that he wasn't that much of a revolutionary, but he was feared as a revolutionary. And the other book by Marcus Borg says that his revolutionary act was to eat at the table with those who were marginalized from society, the women, the lepers, the tax collectors. That was a revolutionary act that would threaten the established order. So um, the story got magnified and enhanced to make him into a mysterious and distant Christ instead of a humane human being. Behaving like him came and went. Believing in him ignored and replaced that opportunity to behave that way. So he morphed from kind to king. The symbol of the early Jesus movement of abundance was the two fishes, or the bread. It came from worldly and spiritual abundance that he promoted. But that became the cross, that symbol changed to become the cross, and the cross was later used at the stake to punish those who would not believe that way. Poor Jesus, to see his life and teaching twisted so gruesomely over the eons. Jesus prayed to God, or the Father, not to himself. He was more a son of man, in community with even the most marginalized one of us. One strand of the Unitarian faith saw him as divinely filled, perhaps, but not God itself. Other strand of the Unitarians said that the Trinity, which is woven into orthodoxy, you're familiar with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, is not scriptural. It's not in the Bible. And when the Unitarians bucked it, it had risen in the tradition of rituals. And they were doing rituals that had three parts, and then they applied meanings to the parts, and finally, as you know how theologians can get, uh, they were imposing it. The Unitarians bucked it, saying God is one, not three. And they were declared heretics for that, and even killed for it. Heresy, though, is defined by the Orthodox. Believe as they insist, or be defined out. Similarly, there were two different faith traditions in our history, the Unitarian and the Universalist. The Universalist were declared heretics as well for not finding hell 
in the scriptures. And for seeing Jesus as a sort of God, if he's going to be a God, a sort of God who loves all. Predeciding who gets saved and who goes on to endless pain and suffering fits the cruel intent of some people, not the God who generously gives sunshine, rain, and self to all. The issue of who he really was goes back in his own time and has remained contentious ever since. <laughs> it was contentious then. The New Testament Gospels that we're familiar with in the Western world what was used for, that we've used for 2,000 years was pared down to those books when Constantine decreed that the bishops should get together and agree he wanted a united kingdom, not a, a fragmented one. So he had the bishops at the Council of Nicaea do this in the year 325. The early Jesus movement, and that's how they tended to call it in the initial days, was the Jesus movement, had been eclipsed. The simple, kind, brave, and very human Jesus that Mark, Matthew, and Luke portrayed in their Gospels was left in the dust. The historical theocentric Jesus, he was a believer in God, had the mystical title of Christ laid on him by John and Paul and others also in our scriptures. It was officially decided and then officially enforced. State-sanctioned Christendom went on into many phases, including the Crusades, the Inquisition, and many, many religious wars. The phrase, it doesn't make an iota of difference. Have you heard that phrase, anybody? I've heard that a lot. It doesn't make an iota of difference came from the warring dispute between the homoousians and the homoousians that had an extra I in the word. Between whether Christ is the same substance as God or the similar substance and just the same nature as God. Very contentious issue. Whether you crossed yourself with two fingers or three was an issue. Converting pagans to Christianity became an excuse to invade, conquer, and exploit them worldwide. Be saved or else. St. Paul said something like this. If he did not rise, then our faith is in vain. Well, I could glibly respond, well, maybe he didn't, and it is. But I don't want to insult believers or remove from those who do believe the solace and the hope that they get out of it. Hoping for an afterlife is common in humans, especially for those who don't appreciate life here or have a hard life here. Merely believing, though, evades behaving. The shame and guilt of his suffering for our sins misplaces from our own regrets and learning and put to the issue of whether we believe or not in order to be forgiven and saved. At its worst, our sins could make his sacrifice worthwhile, forgiven, no matter what we do. Well, we know better now a little bit more about those early days. 
the early Jesus movement documents that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and at Nag Hammurti in the 1940s, the Gnostic Gospels, replicate many of the Old Testament books. They copy what was being done in their scriptures. And then they add very different early pre-Christian Jesus movement views, such as those of Philip, Thomas, and especially Mary. Philip, for instance, said, the rulers want to deceive man since they saw that Jesus had a kinship with those who are truly good. He went on to say that they took the name of the good and they gave it to those who are not good, thereby deceiving and binding us. Thomas had Jesus criticizing otherworldly fantasies. He says, if you look to the sky or the sea or the birds or the fish will precede you. Come to know what is in front of you, Thomas says, and that which is hidden will become dear and clear. He said, if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. If you don't know yourselves, he said, you will live in poverty and you will be poverty if you do not know yourself. Finally, we get to Mary Magdalene here. Mary Magdalene was not only one of the honored disciples in that early circle, a scandal itself in a patriarchal setting, a crossing of the legitimate lines by Jesus to do that. Jesus used to kiss her on the mouth. Peter was jealous. But Peter got written into the new canon as the head of the new church. No Mary allowed. So interesting. I think it was Carl Jung, when I was reading Jung, who astonished me with an obvious fact. He says, where in Christendom are the women? Well, they're running the churches <laughs> and all that. But in the, in the stories, other than Mother Mary, what she got? And she was a virgin they say. So if you're interested, I recommend uh, you, I have the books here. Uh, uh, I got a bunch of them. You can look at them afterwards. Elaine Pagel's The Gnostic Gospel and so forth. She's a biblical scholar who translates the varied and sometimes alarming and forbidden gospels, the ones that got kicked out. So I will speculate here, my own speculation, that the love between Jesus and Mary was as scandalous, but as possible, as what I speculated two weeks ago about the love between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Now, call me a romantic, but I honor and I value love and sex in humans despite the shame and blame we're tricked into having instead. I believe what it says in Genesis 1, my favorite scripture that we are born of a natural, evolved creation, and that, we, that, that it and we, males and females, are of the creator, the creation, and we are good. That's the magnificent part of Genesis 1. If you, have, if you don't know where to find it, just go to page 1. There it is. <laughs> and it's the six, stage of, uh, six days of creation. I think of it as six, six epochs of creation. Fairly congruent with the 
the evolutionary story of starting with light and uh, eventually creating matter and water and plants, animals, and humans. And the crucial word, if you ever read that story, the crucial word on all those steps is that God only creates it. He calls it good. I notice also that in Genesis 2-3, the next set of stories is the Garden of Eden story. There's two creations there. We were unashamed of our nakedness in Eden until we ate of the fruit of the subtle deceiver and so hid our sex in shame. That's the real original sin, in my mind, to take what the Creator made and valued as good and to tell us it isn't. So Mother Mary and Mary Magdalene were the ones to go to Jesus' tomb after the crucifixion. He didn't stay on the cross for the usual three days of slow suffocation that that death took. They took him down in three hours. You wouldn't want to offend the Sabbath, you see, with an execution like that. I like the idea that his mother and his lover revived a nearly dead Jesus. I like the idea that he showed himself to a few of his close ones and then left town. I would. <laughs> he had done his work, one to three years of work. Maybe he and a woman migrated to Gaul, what we now call France. Or there's another story that such a couple left at that time and migrated to northern India, where they had a family, lived and died, and there's a tomb there. There's a grave where some people say that's where Jesus is buried. Now, as an aside, I notice that the Sunni Muslims say that saying that there's a grave anywhere is blasphemy and you shouldn't do it. Because he's not here, he's in heaven. Jesus was probably executed by the Romans with Pharisee support because they feared this man as a revolutionary. The rulers of that time, the Romans and the, and the generals, the governor and whatnot, were only 1% of the people, but they owned 50% of the land. The, their lackey priests, the, the Pharisees, owned another 15% of the land. Well, Jesus tended to the low, and he railed against the haughty. He ate with tax collectors and with women. He healed people by touching them and not leaving them to be shunned by a cruel, exclusive community. However, as we're talking about this, it's a red herring argument to accuse Jews for having killed Jesus. Jesus was a Jew, seeking to mend the Jewish community primarily. It's as silly to blame them for, uh, blame them now as it is to blame Italians for having once been Romans. The real story is how inclusive, kind, and brave he was. How human, but probably better than most humans. He is said to have said, I have come to give you life more abundantly. His was an affirmation of the goodness of life and humans. He lived up to that in his time. Do we in ours?
Do we honor the image of God that's built into us, taking our role in the creation by being human co-creators? Do we bring forth that which is in us so that it does not rot within us? Do we stand up to our own unique authenticity like Emerson favored? Do we love this world and us hurting humans like Jesus did? So as we celebrate Easter today, uh, let us acknowledge humanity is going through an archetypal transformation lately, an unjust ordeal. And we need to come back to life. Our industrial ways have condemned us and our descendants to needless heat and related troubles for centuries to come. Our economy denies most their time and dignity while engorging a few with the riches they don't even enjoy. And senseless, stupid wars, suicides, and murders are wounding everyone involved. Our grand cathedral burned and supposed religious types cheer on he who welcomes children with razor wire. So it's a dark night of the world's soul, again. Good people are trying to find their way in all the various churches, temples, and mosques, despite how the messages heard in those places may have wandered into dogmatic fantasies, distant from the original, ultimate, human, humane goodness that we were built to be. Yet we could be reborn. I felt that way, tears running down my face last fall in Ashland when the Women's March came through town. The Ashland has big parades. <laughs> they really do it up. I have never seen a bigger parade than the Women's March last fall. Will women be the Marys we need to rescue us from a temporary tomb? Will children skip school in order to teach us what's important, as they recently have done? I hope so. But it takes all of us to awaken to the goodness that we're built of, that we can give, that we can enjoy, that we can share with each other, that we can encourage in each other. Now that would be a resurrection I think Jesus would favor. Thank you for your kind attention.